Well, wait, Dwayne, um, that was quite transparent of you. I, I, can, I can hear Juliet right now, and she's thinking, Dwayne, Dwayne, wherefore art thou, Dwayne? Oh, um, what a wonderful way to read the scriptures, to, to bring it to life. And, and that is what we are here for today, to, to see that the scriptures are alive. I mean, what better thing to keep us alert than to talk about sex, right? And, and to be able to see that God cares even about that part of our lives. And he cares so much that he doesn't want us to just get it for one big dose of it. He wants us to know the power of it as it ebbs and as it flows, as it grows, as times when there are mysteries and you wonder where it's been, times even where there's pain and hurt, but at the same time to know that God will bring it back and make it stronger than ever before. And as we've continued through the book of the Song of Solomon, we have been learning about different aspects of love that a husband and wife can share. But one of the things that we've been learning about over the weeks is that this is a story. It is also something about our love for God and about God's love for us. And so as we look at the Song of Solomon, it's not just for married people. It's for all people. And we all need love. We all want love. There's probably nothing more that we want, even more than food. We want love. And God loves us in a way that fills us more than food or drink ever could. But we can't just depend on one dose of love. We need to cultivate love. We need to do things that help love to grow. We need to do things that would help to make love to prosper. And, and so I want you to think about what are things in your life that you enjoy cultivating? What are things in your life that, that you enjoy watching grow from something small to something bigger? What are things in your life that you have planted, both literally and also figuratively, that have begun to mature and to become stronger and to produce fruit and to produce life? You know, I remember as a little boy in our backyard, one of the things that I wanted to do was to have a garden. And so my dad would help me, and we would, we would till out a little portion of the backyard, and I would plant seeds, and I would water it, and I love watching it grow. And it was from my dad that I learned to enjoy gardening. And to this day, I still enjoy gardening. And gardening teaches me many things about life. But there's one key lesson that I've learned about gardening over the years. And that lesson is this, is that if I do nothing weeds will grow. If I do nothing, something's still going to happen. Weeds are going to come in and take over my garden if I don't work at it, if I don't cultivate the things that God wants me to have in my own life. If I don't cultivate love with Carol, weeds will grow. If I don't cultivate love with my children, weeds will grow. And so God wants us to work at the things that matter. And today, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about those things that truly matter. And what the Song of Solomon teaches us is both physical but also spiritual. Over the years, thousands of years that Song of Solomon has been read by people who believe in the Bible have struggled with it. They've wondered, is it simply just sort of a sensual book or is it a spiritual book? 
And some have gone to the extreme of saying it's only a spiritual book. It's completely an allegory about our relationship with God. But I don't think that's true. I think it's both. I think it is both a physical illustration to us of love through a man and a woman, but also a spiritual book. So if you're taking notes there, you can see that the, you can see that the Song of Solomon is, it is a sensual book. It is a sensual book that's intended to promote joy, fidelity, and commitment in every marriage. So God wants us to learn from the joy that we see in Solomon and his bride. God wants us to learn from the commitment that they have. And God wants us to learn from how they've overcome conflict, to remain faithful and to have fidelity and to have joy and clarity in their marriage. And God also wants us to learn from this book a spiritual truth that applies to all of our hearts. And I believe the Song of Solomon is a book that's intended to promote faith, hope, and love in all of us. Faith, hope, and love in all of us. Because as much as we have a human desire and need for love, I think that it always points every physical desire that we have, all of our physical senses, I believe, points to a spiritual need that's even deeper, a spiritual desire that's even higher, and that God himself wants to be the one to fulfill it. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look first at the physical area of how love is lived out on a human level. But then we're also going to see how it is a picture, how it parallels our spiritual lives with God. And so we look again at the first nine verses. And, and Dwayne read the first five. And let me read um, verses six through nine. And you can follow it there on your outline. How beautiful you are and how pleasing O oh, love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of the palm, and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like the clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. And so we look at this passage beginning at verse 1. And one of the things that we notice is that Solomon is looking at his bride. And now they've been married. They've overcome conflict. And now they are reconnecting with each other and enjoying the maturity of their relationship. They are finding delight in each other. And what we find here is we notice is if he actually begins at her feet and he works his way up. Literally, he starts at the feet. He says, how beautiful are your sandaled feet? And then he says, you have graceful legs. And graceful can also be translated beautiful. And then he says, your navel is rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. And then he's staying around the middle of her torso and says, your waist is the mound of wheat encircled by lilies. And he goes up and sees her breasts and he praises her. They are like two fawns. They are gentle. His, her eyes are like pools of Heshbon, and these were beautiful pools, a reflection pool. Her eyes reflect the beauty of the lights around her. Your head, your nose, these are things that he sees as beautiful and as strong. And Tower of Lebanon could also mean like the mountains of Lebanon. And so these are things of strength, like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. 
And so we see that he covers her from foot to head. He sees in her beauty in every place of her life. And I think this is what's so important. And our first point is this, that we as husbands and wives learn to delight in every part of our spouse's life. In every part of our spouse's life. We don't fixate just on one part. So if this was just simply a sexual desire, we know which parts the man typically is going to focus on. But he doesn't. He doesn't focus just there. He focuses even on her feet, all the way up to her hair. He focuses even on her legs. He focuses on every aspect of her life. And I believe that's something that we all want. No one wants to be loved or liked for just one thing about themselves. We're all yearning to be accepted wholly as we are. Our whole person, every part of us. And this is what Solomon does for his woman. He shows that he cares about every part. And he longs to be with her. And that's what verses 6 through 9 is all about. He longs, he shows to the depths to which he wants to be with her. He wants to experience the delight of their love together. And so this is the physical aspect. This strong, burning desire to be with somebody else. But it is here that I think that there's a great opportunity for us to see how it parallels our need and our love for God. Um, Before I met Carol, there was a couple of years of my life that were directly that were going, uh, that were difficult times in my life. And so during those two years, I wasn't dating anybody. But I was building friendships, platonic friendships with girls and good friendships with guys. And one of my friends, her name's Karen, a very good friend, and we were talking about me getting ready to go out and try to find a girl and to start dating again. And, and she knew me very well, and she said something to me that literally changed my life. And, and every now and then, you'll hear something from somebody, and it will actually be something that just bookmarks throughout your life, and this is one of them. And she said to me, Curtis, you know, it's good that you're going to start dating again. But, you know, I think that before you're ready to date a girl, you need to learn to date God. And I thought, that's weird, you know. And I said, you don't mean literally, right? I mean, you mean this is like spiritually, right, or something? And I said, you think I need to date God before I'm ready to date a woman? And and she goes, yeah. And I said, what do you mean? And she says, well, what do you do when you date a girl? I said, well, we go out to dinner. Might go out to a movie, go for a walk. And so she said, do that with God. And I thought, that's weird. That's really weird. But I thought about it. And being a good friend, I I, I took her up on it. And so I I went to this restaurant. I still remember. It's called Yakitori 2 down by Sports Arena down in San Diego. And I went there. And I, I had a date with God. And I thought, this is going to be really weird. I was going to be so self-conscious. And people are going to be looking at me and wondering, like, this poor loser. He goes all by himself, all by himself. And it's like, oh, i got to look like I'm doing something. So I, I, I brought a book of poetry with me. Okay? And, and I bought this book of po- brought this book of poetry with me. I got to the restaurant. I got seated. I ordered my meal. And I, I read this book. I read the poetry in it. And then, and then after dinner, I, I went on a walk. And, and I imagined myself 
going on a walk with God. Okay? And I did it. And I came back, and later I saw my friend, and I said, hey, Karen, I did it. I went on a date with God. And, and she said, that's great. Do it again. And I thought, oh, so I just had to do it one time. Okay, so I did it again. Next time I took God out to a movie. And we went to this movie, and we saw a movie. It was a comedy, and we saw the movie. And, and one thing I realized about dating God that's really cool, he's a cheap date. <laughs> I never had to pay for him. And he's always there. And I went back and told my friend, and she goes, that's great. Do it again. And so our dates got more intimate. And we went for walks. I remember going on the walk on the beach with God. Going on a walk at Harbor Island with God. Going on a walk with God became a lesson for me about my life with Carol, who I met months later. And that is this. The lesson that I learned about learning to date God before I was ready to date a girl is that the quality of my relationship with my wife is directly proportional to the quality of my relationship with God. The quality of my relationship with Carol is dependent upon my relationship with Jesus. And this is what I believe Song of Solomon is teaching us, is that we can delight in God because first and foremost, he is delighted with us. God is delighted with us. In the Expositor's Bible Commentary, there's this phrase there, and I, I wrote it down there for you in your outline. And it says this, There are three occasions when the groom describes her beauty in detail, and only one where she reciprocates. If the song has any allegorical significance, it should indicate that God finds us much more delightful than we find him. His capacity for love and joy is greater than ours, even though the object of our affection is greater and infinitely more worthy. And that God loves us more than we love him. God is delighted in us more than we are delighted in him. And God is committed to us more than we are committed to him. And as we learn to walk with God and we learn his love for us, it becomes the reservoir from which we are now able to give to other people so that it reflects my relationship with God when I'm committed to my wife. It reflects my relationship with God when I'm committed to my friends. It reflects my relationship with God when I'm committed to the body of Jesus. And so God has called me to know that God is delighted in me. He is delighted in loving me completely. He's delighted in loving you completely. That God finds us beautiful. You know, the end of the story is that we all get to go to a wedding. The end of the story is that not only do we get to go to the wedding, but we as believers of Jesus Christ get to be in the wedding. And not only do we get to be in the wedding, we are the bride. And so we look at the end of the story, the last book of the Bible in Revelation, and we see how God loves us. You have Revelation 19, 7 through 8 there, and Revelation 21, 2, 3 on your outline. Um, would you read them out loud with me? Let's read them together. 
Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. This is how God sees you and me. And so in Revelation, we have a picture here. We have a description of what it's going to be like when we get there. That God wants us to know that we as the bride are ready to rejoice. We as the bride are going to experience God's glory. We as the bride are going to be married to the Lamb of God who is Jesus Christ. He is our bridegroom. And he is going to help us to get ready. He is going to give us fine linen. He is going to give us bright and clean things to wear, these robes which are represented in our righteous behavior. That God wants us to know that we are dressed with his holiness. That we are dressed with himself. And that we belong to him. And that he delights in us. For as much as Solomon longed to be with his wife, so much more does God long to be with you and with me. And that is his commitment to us. And as we look at Revelation, here's something else that we see that's so important for us as we think about commitment to our spouses and to those that we love, is that as God looks at us, he does not just see us as we are. He sees us as we shall be. He does not just look at us in the way that we are today. He doesn't just look at us in the flesh and see our weaknesses, though he loves us all the same. He doesn't just look at us in the ways that we are trying to become better people, though he appreciates that. He looks at us in the ways that he knows that someday we're going to be perfect. He sees us as we are going to be. He sees us already as fully forgiven. He sees us already as the bride of Christ and he loves us. He delights in us even now for the way that he sees that we are going to be. And this is such an encouragement to us because it means that there is always hope. It means that we can always move forward even when things get hard because someday we are going to all be changed in the twinkling of an eye and we're going to be changed into the beautiful bride of Christ. And God loves us like that right now. But we have yet to experience it until the future. But in between, there is difficulty. In between, there are trials. I mean, what do we do when it gets difficult? How do we really cultivate this love when it feels like I don't want to anymore? Or when it's so difficult? How do we do this? You know, when we got married, we said our vows, right? And we truly meant them. I don't think anybody intentionally lies when they get married. You know, of all the weddings that I've performed, I'm confident that uh, each of them, the bride and the groom, 100% meant it when they said their vows. And so when I said, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, they meant it. It wasn't like this one man who, when the pastor said, you know, will you take this woman to be your wife, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. And he pauses, and he thinks, and then he says, yes, no, yes, no, no, and yes. He only wanted the better 
He only wanted the richer. And he only wanted the health. But the reality is, is when we get married, there is going to be the worse. There is going to be the poorer. There is going to be the sickness. God wants us to know he has always been committed to us when we were in our worst. And he loves us. It is his love, it is his commitment that inspires our commitment. And so we can move on. And God can help us to be the spouses and the people that he made us to be. And so God wants us to know that there is still yet another way that we can cultivate commitment. Make your spouse the only object of your desire. When it gets difficult, make your spouse the only object of your desire. It is at those moments when life is difficult that it's easiest to wander away. It is at those moments that the grass truly seems greener on the other side of the fence. It is those moments when we are easily tempted to think we made a mistake. It is in those moments when we need to go back and remember the day we got married and remember what we said. And remember what we felt. And remember our desires to be focused on our husband or on our wife. Make your spouse the only object you desire. Let me read the second half of verse 9 and verse 10 of Song of Solomon, chapter 7. And this is the woman continuing to speak. And she says, May the wine... Go straight to my lover, flowing gently over lips and teeth. I belong to my lover, and his desire is for me. Verse 10 is a key verse in the whole book of the Song of Solomon. She has said it three times. I am my beloved's, and he is mine. Here she says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. She's secure. Because she knows that his desire is for her. But she also knows that he has made her the object of this desire. The word desire means to run after or to overflow. And this is what God has given to us as a challenge, as a commitment on our part. Will I continue to run after my spouse when it's difficult? Will I continue to hold on to the things that I once promised to never let go of? Will I make my spouse the object of desire? Is it easy? No. And I think back to the times where I failed in my marriage with Carol. And I know, without a shadow of doubt, the only way that we made it was by God's grace. And God's grace giving both of us strength to work on those difficult parts. But God does give strength. God does give hope. We cry out to God for his help. He knows what it's like to have a wayward wife. In Hosea, the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, God told the prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute. You think, that's what? Why would God do that? Because God was using this prostitute, her name was Gomer, to be an example of Israel who had prostituted itself and turned away from God. 
And so God in the book of Hosea struggles with what do I do? What do I do? I cast her off? Do I send her away? And then he says, no, my heart is turned within me. Oh, Israel, how can I turn from you? How can I let you go? My heart is changed within me. God says in Hosea, my heart is changed within me. I cannot let you go. God knows what it's like to have a wayward spouse. And God says, I won't let you go. I can't let you go. I'm committed to you. I am your lover. And my desire is for you. God wants communion with us. And I believe this is the deep, important spiritual truth in this passage. That God desires communion with us. He loves us so much. He wants to be with us and he wants us to be with him. And that is why he gave us Jesus. And we hear in John 17, Jesus' prayer for his people. His prayer for his disciples. And what he longs for them. And he is about to leave this earth. He is about to go to the cross, to die, then to resurrect and to go up to heaven. He knows that physically he won't be with these people anymore. So he prays for them. He prays for them to have strength. He prays for them to have commitment. He prays for them to understand that someday they are going to have eternal fellowship and communion with him. In John chapter 17, 22 and 23, you have the verses there. I'll read it and you can follow. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. How much does God love you? He loves you as much as he loves Jesus. I mean, let that sink in for a moment. Jesus is saying it right here. I have come to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. God loves you the same way he loves Jesus, his own son. What kind of love is that? God loves us that much. In John chapter 17, the next verse. Would you read that verse with me? Verse 24. It's on your outline. John 17, 24. Let's read it out loud together. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. God has made us the object of his affection. God has a desire for communion with us through Jesus. And someday we can be with him forever if we have this relationship with him, if we have this commitment to follow him, if we give our lives over to him. He is our bridegroom and we are his bride, and he has made every effort to reach out to us. He has made every effort for us to be in fellowship with him, and he does it before we are Christians so that we can come to know him, and once we know him, he continues to give us that invitation. But even when there is difficulty, even when we sin, he still reaches out. 
He allows us the choice of choosing to follow hard after him. But it is a choice that we have to make. It is a choice that each of us has to make to cultivate commitment, especially when it's hard. And it's not hard to cultivate commitment when things are easy. It's only meaningful when we've gone through the things that make it powerful and precious. And so we see this happening in the Song of Solomon, chapter 7. And our third point is this, of how we can cultivate commitment. We can initiate the hard work needed to grow our love. We can initiate the hard work needed to grow our love. Let me read verses 11 to 13 for you. And again, this is the woman speaking. And she says, come, my lover, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if the blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes send out their fragrance. And at our door is every delicacy both new and old, that I have stored up for you, my lover. What passionate words these are in the physical realm. That God has given to this woman a desire to be with her husband. He is in the vineyard and she has gone to him. We see three times that she says to him when she meets up with him, let us go, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. And then let us go early to the vineyards. God has spiritual vineyards in our lives. And we have a relationship with him. And God wants us to also initiate the hard work of building that relationship with him. We have to be intentional. She's intentional. She says, let us get up. Let us go to the countryside. But it's also an earnest work. It requires unselfish desire. She says, let us go early to the vineyards. Let us get up early and go. Let us make time for each other. Let us make time to build our relationships. So wives, you too have the opportunity and the responsibility to initiate love with your husband. To initiate relationship with him, to initiate discussion with him. And I know most of us guys, we're not real quick. You know, I'm picking up on that. But you have to continue. You have to do the things that help us to understand. I mean, three times she says, let us go. Maybe it takes three times for your husband to hear you say, come on, let's go. Come on, let's go. Come on, let's go. Wives, don't give up on us. Give us a break. But at the same time, give us a hand. And draw us to yourselves. Help us. And in the spiritual realm, God says, initiate. Come to me. Choose to seek me out. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, says this. And he says, our own souls are our vineyards. They should be planted with useful trees. We should often search whether we are fruitful in righteousness. Christ's presence will make the vine flourish and the tender grapes appear as the returning sun revives 
the gardens. Your heart for all of us is like a garden. Your heart for all of us is a vineyard. And God is calling us to himself so that he might lavish us with his love. He is saying, will you enter into my vineyards? Will you seek me out so that I can shine my sun on you so that your garden can grow, so that I can help you to receive all the things that I want you to have. God wants us to initiate because he wants to give us more than we can handle. He wants to give us more than we deserve. And this is the final point, the spiritual truth of what we learn from these verses in song. And that is that God always gives. God always gives. And what he gives is exceedingly abundantly more than we can ever give him. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, Paul's praying for the Ephesians. And and before we read together verses 20 and 21, I want to read to you what comes right before it. And so in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul says, I pray, I pray that you being rooted... Think about that as a a garden, right? And how we need to have roots. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. How much does God love us? Paul continues and he says, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And that God is inviting us and God is calling us to receive this abundance in our lives so that we can know the love of Christ in our hearts, that it is the love that inspires our commitment to others. It is the love that inspires even our commitment to him. And so now let us read together, and you have it in your outline. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Let's say it together. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. What does God want to give to us more than we deserve? He wants to shower on us the abundance of his love. He wants us to initiate with him the response of that love so that we can receive even more. He wants us to know that we are the object of his desire. He wants to be the object of ours. He wants us to delight in his love. And he wants us to share that delight with our spouses. God loves us. And he wants us to know that wherever we are, we can cultivate a commitment that will grow a love that will never die. A love that will create fruit. If you're sitting by your spouse or your significant other right now, as we go into prayer, would you just take their hand and let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for 
the love that you have for us. And Lord, right now, for everyone who is not holding someone else's hand, would you just turn your hands upward? And if you want, you can even reach them up towards God. And know that he is holding your hand. Lord, I pray and we pray. For every relationship right now where a hand is being held. That you would deepen the love in that relationship. Building a commitment. Remembering the vows. That they would have the courage to continue to initiate and persevere in the hard work of commitment and love. That they would make each other the only object of their desire. And that they would delight in every part of their spouse's life. And Father, I pray for all of us who are struggling in our marriages right now. Who are going through hard times. Lord, may we see that even right now you have your hands around us. You do understand our hurt. You do understand our pain. You do know the frustrations, the anger, the sorrow, the tears. But Lord, would you please hold us in that? Would you bring hope in the midst of this darkness? Would you save us, Lord? Would you save our marriages? Would you save our families? And would you give us, Lord, the infusion of your grace to see the weeds removed, and to see seedlings grow, and to believe that fruit will someday come. Grant us mercy, O Lord, for we who struggle. And for all those, Lord, right now, whose hands are just turned up towards you, our hands are to be held, Lord, in your hands that you reach down to us and you remind us that it is only your love that ultimately satisfies us. It is only you who can fill any empty place in our hearts. And it is you who loves us as our husband, as your spouse, that you love us unconditionally And you love us forever. And Father, if there's any here who have yet to receive the fullness of that love through faithful desire to follow Jesus Christ, may it be in their words now, Lord, and in their heart that they would just say to you, O God, O Jesus, I give my life, my heart to you to receive that love and that grace you came to give. 
Lord, help us to be committed in our faith. Help us to be committed to you. Thank you, Lord, for always being committed to us in Jesus Christ. Amen.